the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Anesthesia Live Broadcast this afternoon. My name is Mike Charlesworth, and today I'll be speaking with the authors of a new paper reporting the effect of a text message intervention on burnout in trainee anaesthetists. Joining us today, we have Emily Larson, who's a senior advisor at the Behavioural Insights team. Emily has worked on reducing burnout and increasing well-being with physicians, educators and children. Welcome, Emily. We also have Dr. Alex Brazier, who's a senior advisor at the Behavioural Insights team and currently leads their work applying behavioural insights to improve healthcare. She's also a PhD student at Imperial College London, and they were also instrumental in supporting this research. So welcome, Alex. And finally, we have Dr. Yi Hanzu, who is a research advisor at the uh, Behavioural Insights team. Uh, she designs and runs rapid online or field trials to inform and improve the delivery of government services and public health and education for clients like Department of Health, Social Care, the NHS, the Education Endowment Fund and the Ministry of Defence. So welcome everyone and thank you very much for joining us this afternoon uh, and I'm really excited about talking about this paper which has just been published um, in the last couple of weeks or so. Um, so <laughs> um, so I'll start with a question because I've mentioned um, all your affiliations and one of the um, things that comes up is the behavioural insights team. Um, so I guess a lot of people will be interested to know exactly what this is, um, but also why you chose to investigate this topic and this particular intervention. Uh, so I'll open that up to uh, whoever wants to come in. Well, I can take the first question, maybe the first part. I will briefly introduce to you its uh, history and mission, and then I'll hand it over to Alex to explain what motivated us to do this research. So BID started live 11 years ago inside number 10 Downing Street as the world's first government institution dedicated to the application of behavior insights. Then BID spun out of the government in 2014, and now it's become a social enterprise owned by NASTA, which is a UK-based uh, innovation foundation. So despite the structural changes over the past 11 years, BIT's mission remains the same. That is to bring together ideas from different disciplines like uh, psychology, behavior, in, uh, behavior economics, and public policy, and use rigorous research methods to generate and apply behavioral insights to inform policy and improve public health services. So the team, for now, I think, as for now, we have run more than 800 randomized control trials. So yeah, we've done a lot of projects. And wow. um, over to Alix. Thanks, Ihan. Um, so a bit about uh, why we chose to investigate this topic um, and, and also this particular intervention. Um, so as you, you briefly mentioned in your introduction, Mike, um, this work was commissioned by the NIHR Imperial Patient Safety Translational Research Centre, which is a centre of excellence that sits within the Institute of Global Health Innovation at Imperial College London. And they are essentially a group of researchers who work on improving patient safety and um, the quality of healthcare. And so they were particularly interested in this work because of the links between burnout and patient safety. And so they commissioned the Behavioural Insights Team, or BIT as we call it, BIT, um, to conduct a program of research aiming to reduce burnout in clinicians. So that's how this all came about. Obviously, I think more broadly between us, we were all interested to work on this topic because 
it was already important back then already and kind of now it's even more important in our eyes um but you know even back then there was already literature making links between burnout and and not only patient safety but also it being bad for the individual themselves who has to experience it associated with poorer psychological and physical health um but also with broader health service implications um so uh, for example, staff being more likely to reduce their clinical practice or even quit their jobs. Um, so that's kind of why we wanted to investigate the topic. Uh, why this particular intervention? I'm sure we'll talk about the intervention a bit more in a second. Um, but um, what we started off by doing was looking at the literature of what's already been done in this space. And broadly, interventions in the past have fallen into two categories. The first is person-directed interventions. So that's things like... Um, mindfulness programs or stress management training and the other category is organization directed interventions um, so that's things like duty hour restrictions for example mm. and when we were looking at that literature what we really wanted to do with our intervention is to we had a few things in mind so we really we were very aware that the people who would be receiving this so the anesthetics trainees are very busy and so we wanted to create an intervention that would be kind of minimally disruptive and not require hours of their time to engage with it and the second thing we had in mind was we wanted this to be a low-cost intervention so that we could kind of roll it out send text messages to lots of people and it not cost a huge amount of money to do so so we had those two things in mind um, and kind of the third final point that's interesting to mention and again i'm sure we'll talk about it a bit more in a second but sending a text message intervention allowed us to include a kind of big range of content, which we thought was important given the kind of multifactorial nature of burnout. So I'll leave it there um, for the time being. Sure. And I, I was particularly um, interested to see that training and ESTIS have been chosen in particular. And we, we know um, that as you say, from literature over the past few years, that burnout is a particular problem in training anaesthetists. Um, is, is that why that population was chosen particularly? And, and why do you think that it is such an issue uh, in those individuals? Yeah, so I can, I can take this one as well. Um, I, so I think the first thing that's important to say is that I think it's a problem generally. If you look at um, the most recent GMC national training survey results, so the 2021 ones, um, about a third, so 33% of trainees responding to the survey reported feeling burnt out to a high or very high degree because of their work. And when they asked trainers the same question, uh, about 25% said the same thing. So it's, it's across the board. Um, but the reason why we were focusing specifically on training anaesthetists is because when this work started, which was now a very long time ago, I think in 2017, um, actually the GMC National Training Survey nor other national surveys didn't actually measure burnout. And so we started off by trying to identify a clinical population that might have kind of the greatest burden of burnout or, um, you know, uh, or that would just be kind of receptive to uh, sort of this kind of work. And so what we did initially was to look at, again, the GMC data, but because there was no burnout measures, looking at uh, sort of different items on the National Training Survey that we thought were good proxies of burnout. So things like how would the respondents rate the intensity of their shifts or how long, how often were they working over their rostered hours, for example. And so through that work, we were able to create a short list of kind of clinician subgroups. And that was a list of nine 
subgroups. And to be part of that list, you had to have more than a thousand practicing clinicians and also to come in the top 10% of two of our proxy measures. And based on that list, we reached out to a number of the industry bodies that kind of represented those groups. And one of those groups was trainee anaesthetists. And when we reached out to initially the Royal College of Anaesthetists, they were just so keen to work together to kind of um, support trainee anaesthetists specifically on this. And they had actually just published a paper just before uh, that found that 85% of their trainees were at high risk of burnout. So it was something that was really important to them. And they were really enthusiastic and actually the whole way through were just fantastic partners. And soon afterwards, the association came on board um, and equally were, were incredibly supportive. And, and we were, I think, very, very lucky in the partners that we had in this work. So big thanks to them. Hmm. And we talked briefly about the, the text messages. Um, I, I think that's a fascinating intervention because I, I guess traditionally before the pandemic, um, a lot of the solutions proposed were very resource heavy or very time consuming. And I guess one of the great things about a text message intervention is, um, as you mentioned, it's it's low cost and it's ease and able to connect with people. Um, but what was the content of the text messages and, and how how was this chosen? And I'll open that up to you, everyone. Yeah, I'm happy to take that one. I think um, we had previous experience in, in trials working in the US with 911 dispatchers where we trialed something a little bit similar. So sending emails rather than text messages to try to reduce burnout in that population. And so I think the idea for text messages sort of stemmed from that. So what are, as you've said, sort of light touch, low cost interventions that don't take entire days of training that aren't completely burdensome. We know obviously anesthetists have a lot on their plate. And so we were trying to figure out what were some good delivery mechanisms um, in which we could get evidence-based well-being approaches to the widest amount of people. Um, so that was sort of the, the reason behind the text message um, as a delivery mechanism in and of itself. Um, in terms of what was included in those messages, our overall approach, as Aliks kind of mentioned, is that we took a really ma uh, multifaceted approach in the development of these messages. So. Um, there's no one size fits all for well-being. Uh, uh, there's no, you know, bullet, silver bullet. And so we tried to draw on a variety of kind of different disciplines. Um, so we didn't similar trials uh, in the well-being space focus on gratitude specifically um, or mindfulness. And we really wanted to give a wide range of um, different messages so that we weren't kind of pigeonholing ourselves into one area that might not be suited for such a large population. And again, the intent for this was ideally we could take this to scale. And so we wanted to make sure that the messages were, were broad enough. Um, so that was sort of the, the thought behind the overall approach. Um, when it came to the development and what's in the messages, again, as Alix mentioned, we really started by examining the literature and trying to choose the most kind of tried and tested constructs, um, both from the behavioral insights literature um, and also the well-being literature. Um, that, and I think worth noting, these are both very new fields. Um, and so we tried to uh, kind of narrow down, you know, what has been seen to work um, in terms of 
reducing burnout or increasing well-being. And we ended up with around 11 themes um, that were kind of grouped into these six higher level categories. So the, the themes that really stood out to us were um, gratitude has been tried quite frequently and has shown increased in well-being, self-efficacy, connection to purpose, social support, um, mindfulness, and then some other BI-related constructs as such as planning prompts or implementation intentions. Um, so once we finished our kind of literature review, we felt like we had a sense of the, the kind of themes we wanted, but I think it was really important. Um, again, as behavioral scientists ourselves, we know that people are much more likely to read a message if they feel like it's personal to them, um, if they feel like it actually relates to their own life. And so in writing these, we wanted to make sure we were highly contextualizing this to the population at hand as much as possible. Um, and we did this through initial interviews. Um, so trying to get a sense of what are the, some of the things that are contributing to burnout or well-being, you know, some of the barriers and enablers um, and, and taking that into account. And then I think um, Alix did an amazing job having a background um, as, as a physician, really understanding um, and looking at kind of the training schedules and thinking about what are the pressure points. So exam times, um, we want to send timely messages when they're under, you know, extreme stress and sitting for sitting or resitting for an exam. And so we tried to time our messages um, to, to kind of help people at those extreme pressure points, um, which I think was, was an important point. And then we also put together two panels um, to kind of give us really honest feedback about is this the right tone? Are we saying things that would be kind of controversial or do these feel like they are broadly kind of acceptable and, and could be helpful? Um, so I think we went through a lot of kind of quality assurance and trying to make sure that this resonated. Um, and then I'll, I'll say kind of finally, uh, obviously we ran this trial, COVID didn't exist. Uh, and then it did. And so we did have to make some adaptations um, so kind of partway through the trial. Um, and so in, in the report, you can see that we did make adaptations to the text messages just to really reflect the, the new lived experience and the realities that were being faced um, by the, the trainees in that moment. Yeah, Alex, or you had anything else to mention about the text messages, which um, uh, which was the, I guess, the main main uh, intervention of the trial? Yeah, I think, and uh, sorry if I missed this, I think the only other thing that I wanted to highlight was um, kind of the involvement of, of trainees and also kind of members of the public in developing the content. Um, you know, obviously we had the, the preceding interviews that obviously informed what we included in the intervention and kind of how we designed it. Um, you know, as Emily said, we had um, kind of trainee members of the Royal College and the association trainee committees kind of um, share their views on the content and, and the design. But we also asked trainees to kind of share stories with us of either difficult moments or kind of positive patient feedback that they'd received so that we can actually incorporate that into the text content itself um, to kind of share things from trainees with other trainees to kind of build that sense of professional community. Um, and uh, we also asked 
um, you know, members of the public for their experience of anaesthetic care to be able to share sort of stories of patients who'd had, you know, great care uh, under the care of an anaesthetist that we wanted to, to be able to share with trainees as well. Uh, uh, I don't know if Yuhan has anything else to add. I think that pretty much covers everything. Thank you. Um, so you identified um, just over 1,500 eligible trainees, um, but about, say, 10%, 153 made it all the way to the final survey. Um, I know you had some ways of um, encouraging um, participants to, um, to stay throughout the course of the intervention. Um, but why do you think that, the, that, that there was a rate of um, uh, dropout like that? And um, do you think you'd do anything differently next time? Yeah, I think um, I'll take this question. So you're right. So if we look at the study from the very beginning to the very end, it looks like only a small proportion of the trainee uh, managed to go through the whole process. But actually, if we zoom in and look at each stage of the studies, we realize that the actual loss to follow up was probably not as severe as we thought. So uh, we did invite more than like 1,500 uh, trainees. However, only 40% of them responded to our invitation. So that's about 600 and something. And the models that responded, they first had to to answer a short survey, and then they were invited to sign up for a study. So the number of people that actually signed up for a study was only about 260 something. So if we look at the proportion of participants that started the study and see how many of them went through, the figure is actually about 55%, which I think it's a decent figure considering that the study ran for more, about a year and also it coincided with the pandemic. <laughs> so overall, it's an um, encouraging result. And we were particularly glad to see that the there is a good balance between the response rate among the control group and the treatment group. So at least there is not a kind of difference that all uh, participants in the control group were less, in, less kind of incentivized to, to continue the study. So in the end, it's quite balanced. And obviously we did kind of anticipate that for those kind of long-term study, loss to follow-up is quite common. So we did came up with a few mitigation strategy before we conducted this study. So one of them is we try to kind of donate a few pounds on behalf of our participants to charities to award each completion of the survey. And I think overall that worked to a certain extent. That's why the final kind of uh, loss to follow-up wasn't as severe and was still within the kind of our uh, expectations. So we had uh, like the minimum participants that we were anticipating and the maximum one. So it's still within the range. And, but obviously um, you could say that there was still things that could have been done to improve this further. And I think one, um, one thing that we could do is actually to invite the participants to sign up before asking them to complete the kind of baseline survey. We feel like if we had done that, uh, the result could have been better. But of all, we've already tried very hard to retain participants. 
um yeah i think there's more that's yeah, it i think from looking at the paper um the thing that strikes me is is that the sample sample is does seem to be representative of those sort of um mid-grade st34 type training in estis and uh i think that's a real strength of the paper that you've managed to um to, to get the number of trainees that you have signed up and also right through to the end but also make it very representative as well and there, there were some other interesting things about that um sample as well which perhaps we'll come on to later mm-hmm. um but i guess it's worth mentioning about the headline finding from the study which was um that in the end there wasn't a difference detected between the intervention and control in terms of the burnout or well-being scores uh which were the primary outcomes um and for burnout in particular the confidence interval of, of the effects around that was actually quite wide um so do you think that the, the text message intervention didn't work or do you think the study was underpowered or is there perhaps something else going on to sort of explain uh, those findings? And I'll open that up to the group. Yeah, I can start. Um, so I think we do feel from our analysis that, you know, we had the power to detect a significant effect and that I think, um, you know, our low intensity intervention maybe just wasn't um, sufficient enough to significantly change participant burnout and well-being, um, especially because of the pandemic. Um, you know, as we've noted a few times, this is this was intended to be a very passive um, intervention in nature. And we know that well-being and burnout are very large constructs. And so it might just not have been kind of intense enough. Um, and it, we obviously required low, com- low commitment requirements. Um, and so this could have also, I think, impacted the potential um, for us to see a significant result. Um, I do think that, you know, while the interventions tested were not successful in increasing trainee well-being and decreasing burnout, um, there's a lots of valuable findings, which um, I'll definitely get to in the kind of future directions or kind of what we learned later um, about the, I think there still is very much a role for figuring out um, either a combination of more systematic changes in, in tandem with light touch approaches um, and seeing kind of how those those two things can work together. But equally, I think this is such a new field, the the kind of combination of behavioral insights um, and well-being and burnout. And so I think we're all learning a lot um, as we go. So yeah, to answer your question in short, I think we we feel confident that we we had the power, we weren't able to detect a significant change. Um, but I might hand it over to Alix to kind of elaborate more on what we found from the follow-up qualitative interviews. Yeah, so we, this is something that isn't, isn't covered in the paper. We, um, after the intervention, we, out of the participants who received the intervention, we actually conducted a number of follow-up interviews with a few, nine in total, it ended up being people who'd received the text message intervention, just to explore in more depth how, what their experience had been, you know, with a view of maybe why it had or hadn't worked obviously when we were recruiting we didn't know at the time um and also to think about how the intervention could be improved in the future and so we can you know uh talk a bit more about the learnings of how it can be improved later on um but it was really interesting to speak to them to hear about 
you know, the the messages that for them were had the greatest impact were most helpful, other messages that were potentially less helpful, you know, which was the case for some and not others, um, really highlighting that um, they're kind of, again, that kind of multifactorial nature of burnout and how for some people, some things are relevant and for other people, they aren't relevant. Um, and, you know, it's obviously, we were trying, we actually created five message schedules with different orderings of the messages to be able to try and tailor what we were saying at which time to pick particular trainees, because we knew that they might have exams at different times or they were switching rotations at different times or that kind of thing. So we tried to tailor it as much as possible, but obviously there was a limit to how personalized we could make the intervention to the individual. And that is something that came up in the, in the follow-up interviews, but also in there was some free text comments in our end line, our final survey. And I think personalization would be something definitely to think about in future, not only in terms of, um, you know, the content we're giving to people. So would people find more of one type of content more useful than another, but also in terms of kind of the frequency of the intervention when it comes in their day, in their week, and also who it comes from. Um, you know, I think it was from a kind of anonymous messenger that sort of was initially set up by, by the Royal College, but the messages themselves weren't signed off by anyone. And I think that would be a really interesting avenue to explore as well. But let's talk about, talk about future directions in a moment, maybe. Yeah, so I think one of the other strengths as well is um, that any benefit is um, derived from this is good, right? Because um, it's very unlikely that the intervention uh, is going to result in in harm and, and obviously the costs are low as well. So I think anything that, that good that's come out of it is um, um, is 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 great. Um, yeah, and, um, just, I can just to say sure. the, um, our interview participants sort of one of the things that came out of that was exactly as you've just said Mike of um you know it's unlikely to do any harm and it has the potential to do a lot of good and so that was that's quite a, a sort of nice framing I think um, and you also undertook some exploratory analyses as well and there were a number of secondary outcomes and and some some other bits of the study that um that perhaps gave some interesting findings beyond um you know those of the primary outcome that the study was powered for which was fascinating um so could you just take us through some of those exploratory findings and why they're um so significant to come out of this yes so i can take this question so the reason we call them exploratory is this is not something that we foresaw in the beginning of the study which we didn't include in our kind of pre-trial registration but, uh, you know, soon, shortly after we launched this study, the pandemic kicked in. So we were wondering, oh, this might make the life of the medical Chinese even harder. So we would like to know whether the interventions would work better or worse for those people that were most negatively impacted by it or who experienced most difficulties as personal or work-related during the pandemic. So as a result, we found that the interventions tend to work better for those that experienced more difficulties or were more negatively impacted. So we think these findings are important because this might help us to understand who will most likely to benefit from these types of intervention and for what occasions those interventions will be mostly appreciated. So we, there's a saying that goes, uh, firewood sand on a snowy day is more appreciated than a bouquet sand on a festival. 
So if you're like, well, maybe the interventions may help those that are most in need. And also the findings provide an interesting avenue for future research, because as you mentioned earlier, we didn't have like a super large sample in the end. So ideally we would like to replicate the findings with a larger sample and to see whether the interventions work better for people who had like higher baseline burnout level. So that will make uh, the findings even more generalizable and replicable. Yeah, that's um, Alex and Emily, feel free to, yeah. to add more. I think you covered it. <laughs> okay, thanks. Oh, Emily? Oh, no, I think Yihan did a great job of covering that. Yeah. And I, I, I was fascinated by reading in the paper the story unfolding about how this was uh, set up upon um, uh, when it was before the pandemic and then along came the pandemic and you've done what a lot of other great researchers have done during that period and adapted and, um, and you know, seen the opportunities there to, to find out new information and um and to share that with us so that was great uh but yeah i found that um from the paper that this text message intervention um was very useful actually for those who were very negatively in, impacted by the pandemic um and um um it's i've not seen much in the way of literature out there which has looked at that particular group of individuals so that'd be really interesting to see if we can get something um more learn more about that in the future but We've hinted now about implications of the paper and um, and how it will impact on future studies. So, have you got anything else planned, or do you think anything um, what can be done with this cohort of trainees in the future to learn more about uh, how we can help and and how we can um, reduce burnout and 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 make things better for uh, for our trainees that are coming through the system? Yeah, um, I. I can start with that. So um, in tandem with with this project, I was actually uh, running two other similar uh, studies. So one working with educators in Canada and another working with uh, physicians in Ontario. So very similar kind of text message based interventions. And these are pending uh, publications. So I, I can't really share much information, um, but I think, you know, every trial that we're running, I think we're learning, we're adapting, we're trying different things. Um, and so I think that's really exciting that we're not sort of entirely giving up on this approach. We're trying to, you know, take these new results and learn as much as possible. Um, in terms of, you know, future directions and, and what advice we might have for people who are interested in doing this kind of work, um, you know, I think, Measurement tools is a big one that sort of came out. So um, as we've alluded to a, a few times, uh, the measurement that we used are obviously very well validated scales. And I think that we should continue to use them, but they do capture uh, more global states of well-being and burnout. And um, our concern, I think, was that we might be missing some of the sensitivities in changes um, of like, affect over time, for example. In addition to that, we took measurement at only three different points. And so we think that it'd be quite interesting to look and see if there are more sensitive tools that could give us some indications around, um, you know, more specific kind of 
uh, well-being indicators rather than just these very high-level global measurements that we know are, are quite difficult to change um, over time. And equally, could we use things like pulse surveys where we send text messages more frequently with kind of one-line one line item questions to get a sense of over time, kind of get a, a bigger picture of if you get a text message, um, what kind of impact does that have on you um, directly? Um, so I think measurement is definitely something that we're, we're very keen to explore um, and to continue to look into. And additionally, there's, um, in regards to well-being interventions, um, there is some evidence to suggest that these interventions um, might not, the impact might not show up immediately. And so that there could be some benefit in following up in longitudinal studies. Um, so definitely something, again, to consider. Um, and then, you know, I think it's very worth recognizing, and, and I hope that we, in our paper and, and in this podcast, we don't downplay the impact that structural and systematic barriers have um, in, in the role of burnout and well-being. So the way that your company's policies, your culture, your organization, um, these have massive impacts. Um, and so I do think it's absolutely worth continuing to, to look at those structural and systematic barriers but trying to also think, are there ways that we can combine interventions targeting those in addition to what we're doing, which are kind of the lighter touch interventions. And I think when we combine that, we might be able to see that there is a, a significant additive um, impact or effect. Um, so I think those are those are kind of the main things. Um, and, you know, Alix had mentioned a few of the other ones, which I think would be really interesting to allow uh, participants to almost pre-specify what, um, what text they might be interested in getting, what kind of frequency they might want to see, giving them more autonomy over the information that they're receiving. And so that, again, it feels sort of more personalized and allowing them to do this before we send the messages, we think could be quite interesting. Um, but I think I would say, you know, obviously now more than ever, all fields, all people are experiencing, you know, the impact um, from COVID, decrease in well-being, burnout, loneliness, and that innovative trials like this are are really needed. Um, we we need to explore these kind of cost-effective solutions. Um, they're not the silver bullet. They might need to be in tandem with other uh, bigger, you know, policy changes. But we do think that there is a role here to be played. Um, and I think we're really, to be honest, at the very beginning of this, um, this combination of kind of behavioral science and the application of these complex and, and multifaceted topics such as burnout and well-being. Um, so this is absolutely, um, I'm, a, I'm a huge well-being and mental health advocate, um, and that's what most of my work is at bit. So my soapbox is that, you know, I think this is a field that we see um, as a very high social impact and something that we'll continue to do at, at the Behavioral Insights team. Well, so we really are just at the beginning and there's so many different ways we can take this now, isn't there? Which is fascinating. Um, yeah. Uh, Ihan or, or Alex, any um, ideas on how 
what we're going to see in the future or um, future studies on this topic in, in this cohort? I think Emily's spoken about, um, you know, very eloquently about the sort of broader implications and, and where this field might go. I might just make a comment on this intervention specifically in this cohort. And I think it was really helpful to speak to those trainees. I mentioned we did some follow-up interviews with, with a few of the participants who received the messages afterwards. And I said they kind of, they told us about the messages that maybe they'd found more useful and messages they'd found less useful or just not helpful at all, actually. So I think, you know, incorporating that information into any kind of uh, future iterations of this, as well as the kind of personalization aspect that we've spoken about a few times, would be really good. For example, you know, trainees said they'd love to see more of the sort of stories from patients that they really liked. Um, you know, could we include more um, links to support resources, which was also thought to be really helpful? Um, you know, and there were different things mentioned, like could we have more stories of sort of colleagues sharing their stories of difficulties and sharing that as well? Um, so I think there could be an adaptation of the intervention that we've got. And I think I would see value in trying to test this again at a time less affected by COVID as well to see what happens, see what happens there too. Absolutely. Well, I also have one point to add. I remember that during the interviews, some participants said that they actually were introduced to mobile apps for increasing well-being. And Though it might appear that the more advanced, advanced technologies or more fancy apps may be more helpful, but some of them actually prefer the simpler kind of messages. Because if it's an app, you have to open it, you have to, you, sometimes you may get an excessive number of reminders from the app. Well, for messages, it's more light touched. So yeah, that's something that I feel is worth noting as well. Yeah, Yuhan, I completely agree. I think, you know, actually that's that's been one of the strengths that's come out of it. And I think that's why, you know, Emily's saying that we're at the beginning and that we see potential in this is that actually the sort of feedback on messages was that, first of all, the vast majority of messages were delivered. So it's kind of a feasible route of delivering an intervention. But that also, you know, the interviewee said that this is quite a sort of novel route of communication almost. It feels a little bit outdated because I don't know how much people actually send text messages to each other rather than WhatsApp or, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, it was actually the kind of novelty of it coming through that, that different route. And, and also there was sort of some discussion about actually the infrequency of the messages. So the messages came about once a fortnight. And in our endline survey, actually the vast majority of people thought that frequency was about right. Um, and, and what's interesting is that in the interviews, it sort of transpired that actually maybe the infrequency of it actually made those messages stand out more and mean more because they came as sort of a nice surprise when they did, did arrive. But, but I also wanted to, to sort of reflect that I feel like we've said a lot of positive things and, uh, you know, in the interviews, uh, you know, I really take on board the feedback, um, of, um, you know, some of the participants who, for example, highlighted messages that they thought, were less useful so that in future adaptations should be removed or changed and I've very much taken those on board and and I think we would need to incorporate those in future adaptations as well. Wow there really is um, a lot to think about in terms of um, um, this incredibly important um, topic and I, and I think you've made a really worthwhile excellent contribution to literature with this paper um, and I would encourage everyone to to read the full paper 
Um, there's a nice infographic on Twitter. You can download and save as well. Uh, the paper's completely free to read and download all, all this week. Um, and um, um, especially with the um, recent paper about um, uh, experiences of trainees, which we featured on live broadcast last week as well, this, this paper goes really well with that. So um, do make sure you read it. And we, uh, as a journal, um, look forward to receiving more work from you guys as well um, uh, in the future when it comes. Um, so thank you very much. Um, this will now become a, this will be free to watch, et cetera, on Twitter. It'll go on Spotify as a podcast later. Uh, but as I say, do make sure you go and um, uh, read the full paper as well, which is a, a really fascinating read. Um, right. Could I yep. just jump in and, and thank sure. the IHR for funding this work and also for our, our, um, our colleagues at Imperial for, for collaborating on this with us. And, and, and most importantly, to everyone who took part, all the trainees that took part, there's in the interviews before, after in the trial, it obviously wouldn't have been possible without, without you all. So thank you. Mm. Yeah, so much collaboration and, uh, and effort gone into this as well, especially as you mentioned. Great to have the uh, backing of the association and, uh, and the Royal Colleges as well. Okay, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, and um, um, we hope to see you uh, next time. We'll, our next broadcast will be about new guidance on the timing of surgery in COVID-19, which we're really looking forward to. So stay tuned for that. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>